It's great to see everyone tonight, and I would like to begin by welcoming each and every one of you here. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're so glad that you've come to be here. We uh, want you to recognize it's a great encouragement to see you, and it is our hope and our prayer that you are blessed tonight by this assembling. Uh, I've already been blessed by the singing, some very thoughtful selections of songs, and and good singing, and it is a great and tremendous blessing for us to be able to be together and to sing together and lift our voices to our God, and we hope ultimately that He is glorified and pleased by that. Uh, as, as was announced yesterday, we're going to be talking about how to get past our past, and, and I want to talk uh, just for a couple of minutes about King David. King David is the man that is known as a man after God's own heart. And, and I think if you look through the life of David, you see that David was a servant of God. He was a righteous person, but David had some dark moments in his life. And I want to talk to you probably about the darkest moment in David's life. The Bible records in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that in the springtime when the kings were supposed to be off to war, that David stayed home. And one night he went up on top of the roof of his palace and he looked down and he saw a woman named Bathsheba that was bathing. He saw her, he desired her, he inquired about her, and he said, bring her to me. And even though David knew she was a married woman and knew that her husband was one of his soldiers and was off at war, David had Bathsheba come to his palace and he slept with her. Bathsheba got pregnant. David, in his desperation to hide and cover this sin, sends for Uriah to come home from war. And when he gets home, David asks him, How's Joab doing? How's the war going? Uriah, go home. You see what he's doing. This man's wife is pregnant. David knows it's his child. He wants Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he can cover this up and no one will know that David is the father of this child. Uriah sleeps outside the palace, refuses to go home and enjoy the comforts of home. And when David confronts him the next day, he says, the ark and Israel and Judah, they're out under the star." My comrades are in battle. I can't go home and be comfortable. I need to be at war. And David said, well, just stay another day. Just stay another day. And so the next day, he gets Uriah drunk. You know, because when people are drunk, they're a lot more open to suggestion. And he thinks, if I can get him drunk, I can send him home, and surely he'll be with his wife, and we can finish this. Uriah doesn't go home. David finally plays, says, well, plan C. He writes a letter to his nephew Joab, who is the general of his army. And in that letter, he instructs Joab as the general that in the hottest part of the battle, put Uriah on the front lines and at the right moment, call for the soldiers to back off so Uriah is left isolated in the midst of the battlefield so he will be killed. Guess who carries the letter? Faithful, honorable Uriah carries his own death sentence and puts it in the hand of the general. And his plan works. Uriah is killed. And this sin is covered. Does that sound like a man after God's own heart to you? That's pretty dark, isn't it? A lot of scheming. A lot of planning. And you know what's interesting about this is David is completely blind to the grievous sin that he's committing. How long do you suppose went by between the time that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and Uriah's death? Well, I'll tell you this. It was weeks. They didn't have pregnancy tests back then. Weeks before she even knows she's pregnant. Then he has to send word and bring him home from the battle. Then he comes home from the battle. Then he's got to go back to the battle. Weeks have passed. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. And he tells David this analogy about this rich man who took a poor man's lamb. And it was the only lamb that he had. And he stole that man's lamb and he gave it to a stranger. 
And David, hearing this, says, that man should surely die. He should be put to death. And Nathan said, David, you are that man. And David's devastated. He's devastated. He recognizes what he's done. You ever wonder why sin blinds us like that? I mean, it's not like David didn't know that he committed adultery. He doesn't know that he didn't plot this man's death. But you know, when his friend rebuked him, his eyes are open and he's devastated. And in Psalms 51, David gives us an insight to his heart. Psalms 51 and verse 1 of the chief musician, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Listen to the words of David. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just, just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, we probably know the words of this psalm, don't we? But it gives it a little bit deeper meaning when you understand the dark moments in this man's life that led him to say these words toward his God. And you know, there's a truth to this that I think we need to admit, and sometimes we don't want to, and that is that not all sin is created equal. It's not. And you say, Brother Ian, all sin is created equal. It all has the same punishment. I understand that. All sin is sin. All sin is against the will of God. All sin demands death, but not all sins are created equal. The natural consequences of certain sins are very different. I'll give you an example. When I was a young man, I don't know exactly how old. Some of you probably still think, well, you are a young man. A little bitty man, eight years old. I go to the plumbing store with my grandfather out at Chief Plastic Supply. And as my grandfather often would do, he'd go in and talk to the store owner more than he did shopping. And so while he's in there shopping, I've, I've got a backpack on and I'm walking around the plumbing place and I'm looking at all the stuff and I walk over to where the PVC and CPV see parts are and I'm looking at all these and I'm noticing these all fit together kind of like Legos so I just load my backpack up make it all the way home nobody you know nobody knows I get to the house I go down in our basement and I, I'm in there putting together this massive nothingness because I don't know what I'm doing and all of a sudden I hear from the stairwell boy I was busted and I got all these plumbing parts back in the backpack. We go back to Chief Plastic Supply. My grandfather made me go up to this man and tell him what I'd done and give him all of his stuff back. And you know what? That was humiliating. And I know that was wrong. It's wrong to steal, but I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I've never laid awake at night thinking about that day. Not once. It was wrong, but... You know what David said? My sin is ever before me. It's always before my face. You ever had sin like that? Sin that hurt people? Sin that was grievous and shameful? Sin that you wish no one knew about? The sin that keeps you up at night. The sin that when you pray to God for forgiveness, you really wonder, is he going to forgive that one though? See, that's the kind of sin David was dealing with. A terrible and grievous sin. You know, David's not the only person we see dealing with sin like this. The Apostle Paul dealt with similar sin in his life. 
In Acts 22 and 19, as Paul is recalling, talking to the Lord about whether or not he's going to go to Jerusalem, he says, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. You know, oftentimes, Paul brought up Stephen. You know why? What do you know about stoning? You know, I remember watching Lord of the Flies when I was a kid and seeing them throw this boulder on this young man. That, that's pretty traumatic and horrific. But you know, he died pretty quick. That's really not how stoning was. They would take a stone, you know, a stone, a rock, they would gather around somebody. Sometimes they would put this person beneath them and they would begin to lob rocks. And these are not major league baseball pitchers. They're just throwing the rocks and they're hitting the person and they're being bruised by it, they're being bludgeoned by it and it takes a while. It's painful, it's, it's brutal. You ever seen something traumatic that just stuck with you? And here, where's Paul at? Holding the clothes of the people that are stoning. What's the significance of that? Do you think these people said, hey, young man, hold our clothes? No. Saul's kind of like the mafia boss. He's not doing the dirty work, but he's leading the charge. Feeling righteous, consenting to it. That word means gladly consenting. He approves of his own deed, his, his murderous work. But later in life, he realizes, I killed my brother. I killed an innocent man. I killed the Lord's servant. And I'm sure that sin, that sin bothered him. Stuck with him. He talked about it often. I don't know, maybe he laid awake at night thinking about Stephen. Remembering his face. Remembering that horrific scene. But you know what I do know about Paul? Despite that, he says these words. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, now listen, will give me in that day. And not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. How do you do that? How do you know you've done something so terrible like kill an innocent man and yet in confidence and in boldness say, I'm going to heaven, I know I'm going to heaven. When I meet Jesus, he's going to crown me with a crown of righteousness. I know that's going to happen. How do you do that? How do you have confidence knowing that you've done terrible things? I'm afraid sometimes we ask the wrong questions. Because oftentimes when we have a sin, a grievous sin that really sticks with us, one of those sins that haunts us, we often ask, how am I ever going to forgive myself? And I want you to know this is not a biblical concept. Nowhere in Scripture do you see an example or a command for one to forgive oneself. You don't see that. And there's a reason for that. And I want you to know this question itself implies something that doesn't represent reality. And that's that there is a how and there is a price that one can pay. There is some action that one can perform where they can finally forgive their self. This is not the answer to peace with our past, self-forgiveness. It's something different. And this question comes from a misunderstanding of the work of Jesus Christ and the work of justification, atonement, and redemption. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 says this, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more now having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's two words he uses here I want to point your attention to. It is the word justified and the word reconciled. That word reconciled means atonement. 
Now, atonement comes from two English words. It didn't even exist until the 1500s when men were translating the Bible. They invented an English word from two English words. They took the word at and the word one, and they put them together and came up with the word atone, at one, reconciled, brought back together. That's what atonement means. That's what it accomplishes. It reconciles us or brings us back together with God. The word justified that's used here, that means to clear from guilt. I've been taught to remember it this way, just as if I had never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. To render one innocent. You know, we use that on the computer sometimes. We justify the margins. Why? Because they're crooked and we want them straight. We justify it. We make it right. We make it straight. Now let's talk about the word redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now what happens is oftentimes we read these words like justified or redeemed or atoned or reconciled or propitiation, which we'll talk about in a minute, and we go, well, that just means you're saved. And it does. They all infer the idea of salvation. They lead toward the idea of salvation. But each one of these words has a specific meaning. So let's not just overlook the idea of redemption because we know that it infers salvation. What is redemption? Redemption is the price that is paid to release someone from a ransom. It's the price. Now let's put all this together in Romans 3. Paul puts this all together, and I want to use the definition of these three words that we just talked about, justify, redeem, and we'll talk about the word propitiation because that infers reconciliation. That's what propitiation means, a reconciler or reconciling factor. So I want to insert the definitions as we read this. Being cleared from all guilt and made right freely by his grace through the payment that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth to reconcile us by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. I want to ask you a question. Can you clear yourself from guilt? How? See, we're asking that question, how do I forgive myself? How are you going to accomplish that? How do you pay for it? Is there enough work? Is there enough money? Is there enough deeds? How do you pay for that? You don't. Who does? Jesus does. Jesus makes the payment. See, you can't save yourself. That is, that is an absurdity. We'll talk about that more tomorrow night, Lord willing. But you cannot save yourself. You can't justify and clear yourself from guilt. You cannot redeem yourself, and you certainly cannot reconcile yourself to God. We need Jesus Christ to do all of those things. And the problem is, sometimes we think we've sinned against ourselves, And we didn't. We've sinned against our God. Someone said, well, Ian, I'm pretty sure David sinned against Uriah. Yes, he did. But Uriah will not justify, redeem, or reconcile David. Stephen will not do that either. He needs God to cleanse him. God to wash him. David says, against thee, thee only have I sinned. It's not about self-forgiveness. You know what it's about? Trust. Trust. You know, when we really doubt that our sins are forgiven, what we're actually doing is elevating ourselves above God. I don't want to ask you, are you greater than God? You say, that's an absurd question. Who would ever say they're greater than God? Well, we might not verbalize that, but we might do that in our action. Let me explain what I mean. When God says the payment is sufficient, I'm cleansing you from all sin, and we say, well, not yet, God. I need to suffer a little longer. I need to hold on to this sin a little longer. What are we saying? Oh, I recognize, God, that for you to forgive, that the payment's enough. But for me to forgive, it's not yet quite enough. And what we've done is we've elevated our standard of forgiveness above that of God. Are we more righteous than God? Are you really willing to look at God and say, you know what, the blood of Jesus Christ is not good enough for my sin. The stripes that Jesus 
what, what was inflicted with across his back. That's not a sufficient payment for my sin. I've got to do something also before I can let this go. You see the absurdity? See, it's all about trust. Because letting go of our past is, not, it is the result of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not the result of forgetting that I've sinned, but knowing that God paid the debt for that sin. I know that's what we want. I know that's what I desired when I think to myself, I want to forgive myself. I'm really thinking I want to forget what I've done. And I hate to burst your bubble. That will never happen. You think David ever forgot about Uriah? He married Bathsheba. You know who was at his deathbed? Bathsheba. I'm sure she was a constant reminder of his sin. He never forgot that. Paul never forgot that he stood there and consented to Stephen's death. He never forgot that he compelled Christians to blaspheme God. He never forgot that he locked up men and women in prison and was an injurious person. They never forgot those things, but somehow they found peace in the salvation of God. So let's talk about why. David says this, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David asked God to wash him. And I want you to know that both David and Paul were able to come to peace with their sin because they were washed. Paul was washed. We see this in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 where Ananias says to Paul, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What, do you, what does that mean, calling on the name of the Lord? It infers that you're depending on someone else. You're depending on the Lord. You're calling upon God to wash you, to cleanse you from your iniquity. Notice 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Now, this is from the New American Standard Version, and I'll explain to you why I've chosen to use this particular translation after we read it. Peter writing says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I chose to use the New American Standard is because of the Greek word eprotema. And it's this word that's translated appeal, which in your King James and New King James, you'll see is translated as answer. Now, eprotema means an inquiry. That's its literal definition, an inquiry. If you look at the root word of that, how it's used all throughout Scripture, it means to inquire or to ask or to, uh, sometimes it says they demanded of him. You see that word in Acts chapter 1 when it says that they asked him about the kingdom. It's the same word. And here's the point. What is baptism? Well, number one, it saves you from what? From sin. And what else is it? It's not an outside washing. Oh, yes, your body gets wet, but it's not an outside washing. It's not a cleansing of the outside, but what is it? It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. We often talk about that in baptism we're washed, and that means that our record is has been expunged. Our record is clear, right? Is that all? No. See, baptism isn't an outer washing, it's an inner washing. It washes the conscience clean. That's what it's designed to do. You know, that's a blessing that we have that Israel never experienced under the old law. Yes, they, they put their faith in, in God's provision for them, for, their, for those sacrifices to atone for their sins, but they never experienced what you and I are supposed to experience in Jesus Christ, and that is a clear and clean conscience. Are we working to undo that work? Have you been washed? Have you been washed? Colossians 2 and verse 11 the Bible here says, in him, that's in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this could be very confusing, and, it, and maybe someone here tonight is not familiar with who he's writing to and why he's talking about circumcision. That might seem odd. 
But understand, I'm, I'm going to do this very, very succinctly, so very, very briefly. At this time, Paul is writing to Gentiles. And if you're not familiar with what that term means, it just means not a Jew. It means not a Jew. He's writing to Gentiles, people that were not circumcised. And the Jews and Gentiles are now together in one body through Jesus Christ. The problem is the Jews are telling the Gentiles, you need to be circumcised. And if you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved. And here's what Paul says, you don't need to be circumcised. Listen, in him you were also circumcised. He said, you are circumcised. No, not physically. No, skin wasn't removed. You didn't have that physical, surgical procedure. But you have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. And what is it that is cut off in this spiritual circumcision that these Gentiles had? The body of the sins of the flesh. So what's cut off? Not skin, but sin. And what is that spiritual circumcision? Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through faith in the operation or the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, made, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. I really want to slow down on this passage because this is a very important teaching here, and I want us to notice this connection, and I want to think about this for a moment because oftentimes people in the world will tell us baptism is a work, and therefore baptism will not save you because we're not saved by works. You're not going to find in Scripture where it says baptism is a work. Okay, you're not going to find that. You're not going to find where Paul opposes baptism against faith. In fact, what we see is they're connected here. Yes, we're saved through faith. When? When we obey, when we have an obedient faith, an act of faith, a living faith. Notice, buried with him in baptism, in which you're also raised with him through faith in what? Not our work, but the working of God. Now, some of y'all know that I had some heart problems back in 2020. I don't want to talk a great deal about that right now, but I will say that I had what the doctor told me was a life-saving procedure. We went to the hospital. They put me inside of a laboratory. They, they did a heart cath. They put a stent in, and I, I have every confidence they saved my life. But I want you to imagine for a moment that as I went into recovery, which I did, and my wife is waiting for me, which she was, and I say to my wife, did you see what I did? She'd be like, huh? I saved my own life, honey. She'd be like, I don't know if they gave you too much fentanyl. Versed, you're talking crazy right now. Honey, we're at the hospital. Um, you, you did not save your life. We're here because you're stubborn. And because you couldn't save your own life, they saved your life. You get the point. Nobody's crazy enough to believe that after someone else performs a life-saving procedure that they themselves save themselves by going there. But yet we say that about baptism? What is baptism? It's the work of God. We're putting our faith, our trust in God. We're saying, wash me, cleanse me. We're calling on the name of the Lord. We're appealing to God. Give me a clean conscience. It's a, it's a request. It's not a work that we do. It's a work that God does. And all we do is surrender. We let loose control. And we say, save me. And what did he say the result of this spiritual circumcision baptism was? Notice verse 13. He says, and you, this talking about their past, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is their former state, now God has done what? He's made you alive together with them and having forgiven you all trespasses. What's that mean? It means because you were baptized into Christ and God has performed that life-saving procedure upon you, you are now alive spiritually and forgiven of all sins. Have you been washed? You say, Ian, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. My sin's too great. I don't deserve forgiveness. You're right, you don't. None of us do. It's not about that. I don't know what kind of sin you've committed in your life. I don't know what kind of sin's haunting you, but I will tell you this. Your sin is not as great as the 3,000 people that were converted in Acts 2. Because they killed God's son. 
I don't mean figuratively by living a sinful lifestyle. I mean they said, kill him, crucify him. And when Peter told them that, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles in verse 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? I don't think we give enough attention to that question. What does that mean, what shall we do? What shall we do to what? To be at peace with God. What shall we do to escape the wrath of God? What shall we do to be forgiven for the iniquity that we've obviously committed? That's the question. What do we do to escape the judgment of a just God? And you know what Peter didn't say? Nothing. I just wanted you to know how guilty you were. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm sorry, your sin's too great. No, Peter said, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. What does that mean, remission? It means removal, justified. That's what it means. Removal of sin. And he said, that promise is unto you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I want you to know, we're called by the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like these people here were. It was very simple. You know what Peter said? What shall we do? Turn from your evil ways and be washed. Are you washed? Number two, Paul was different. And when I say Paul was different, I don't mean he was strange. Or Paul was peculiar. I do believe he was strange and peculiar. But that's not what I mean. I mean Paul, the apostle Paul was different from Saul of Tarsus that stood there and consented to Stephen's death. He was different. And I don't even think different really captures the change that happened in Paul's life. So let's allow Paul himself to describe that change. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul really saying here? I believe Paul is saying this. That old man, that man of sin, that persecutor, that blasphemer, that man who killed Stephen, he is dead. And he no longer lives. See, I used to do what I wanted to do. And I lived how I wanted to live. And I said what I wanted to say. And I thought how I wanted to thought, but I no longer do that. Jesus dictates all those things. Jesus lives in me. He lives through me. And it's manifest outwardly. I don't live anymore. I've surrendered control to Jesus. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I want to ask you, if you're washed tonight, are you different? Are you different? Are you? Romans 6, 11 says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I find this interesting because earlier in the chapter, he had just said that we have been crucified with Christ in baptism. He said that we've been buried with him in his death. We're dead now. But then he has to say this, reckon yourselves dead. See, it's not enough just to know that that concept exists, that I was crucified with Christ. You have to consider yourself dead. And you know when you need to do that? Every single day. Every day. You've got to reckon yourself, consider yourself, esteem yourself as dead to sin. You know what we do? We resurrect that sin. We're washing the blood of Jesus. We're living faithfully with Christ. And the devil, he is crafty. He is deceitful. We see someone and it reminds us of our past. We see something and it reminds us of our past. And we resurrect the old dead man. And we go, you are dirty, you are filthy, sit down, you sinner. No, I'm dead. That man's dead. And he no longer lives. What, what are we killing? What's dying? Notice what Paul says in Colossians 3 and 5. Therefore put to death, notice that, put to death, your members which are on earth, on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, people often say, well, I'm just trusting in God to put those things to death. That's not good enough. Yes, you need to trust in God. Yes, you need to trust that God has crucified that old man in baptism. But here's what he says. You put to death 
your members which are on the earth. You put to death your evil desires. You mortify the deeds of the flesh. You've got to make that choice. You know how you do it? By saying no. It's actually really simple. Those impulses, those desires that maybe you've struggled with your entire life, as you walk with Jesus, you tell those things, no, I'm not doing that. Because I live for Jesus now. Do you do that? Are you different? Do you live differently? Or do you just continue to live the same way and hide your sin and hope no one notices? I want to read from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now listen very closely. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know what he says? He says life is an endurance race. You know, endurance races are long. They're long. And if you've got something that is surrounding you or something that's weighing you down, you're going to lose that race. And he says you need to lay aside every weight, but also you need to get rid of, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. And if you look at that word ensnares, it means to thwart on every side. I remember I watched this movie years ago. I don't recall the name of the movie there was this very intense scene where this damsel in distress was running through the woods and these evil soldiers were chasing her and it's real intense the music's really intense there's all these cut scenes and zooms and you know axes hitting trees and bark flying off trees very intense she she gets out through the woods she gets into the clearing she stops she looks around and there's no one around and she breathes this sigh of relief and she turns to run and she hits a soldier in the chest so she turns around the other way and she hits a soldier in the chest and then it pans out zooms out and they're surrounding her you know what she did she just laid down on the ground that's what sin does if you don't take care of your past and live differently I'll tell you what your sin will do it'll destroy you every time you try to step out and serve God there's your sin and it says sit down sinner you're dirty you try to go this way, but there's that sin. You've got to let it go. Not because you're worthy of it. Not because you've paid for it. Not because you've done anything, but because you've been washed in the blood of Jesus and you're living for Christ, so you let that go and you trust in God's provision. And you say, I am new. I'm not living in the past. What did Paul say? Forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I can't look back at Saul. I can't look back at my status. I can't look back at my sin. I can't look back at my murder. I can't look back at my deeds. I've got to keep moving forward toward Jesus for his purpose. And he had peace because he was different. And number three, Paul had peace because he didn't try to hide or deny his sins. As I said, Paul talked often about his former life in in verse uh, 9 of chapter 26 of the book of Acts, Paul says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, These are things I felt compelled to do. That was part of my old life. I felt like I needed to do these things. And so I did these things. I did them in Jerusalem. He says, Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I want you to notice that. It wasn't just Stephen. He said, there were many people put to death, and I was there, and I voted to kill them. I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue, and I compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It's been said that the devil cannot hold us hostage for the sins that everybody knows about. But I'll tell you, when you try to hide them and keep them secret, I want you to know it is a slavery that you'll live in for a long, long time. But see, we're resistant to that idea, resistant to confessing those things that hurt people, that are shameful, that are disgraceful, the things that we ourselves are ashamed of. We, we struggle to do that, struggle to let those things go, struggle to confess those things. And guess what? So did David. And I want, to see, I want you to see how it affected David to hide his sin. 
David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I want to say, Amen. Amen. There's not a greater blessing than that. To know that God has cleansed you. But you know what? He doesn't stop there. I want you to notice verse 3. David said, there's another side to this. When I kept silent, about what? About my sin. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. You know what that means? We would say it this way. I was dying inside. I was dying inside all day long. And then he says this, for day and night, your hand, that's God's hand, was heavy upon me. My vitality, that is my life, has turned into the drought of summer. He said, it's, it's as though I'm like a weed out in the middle of the West Texas panhandle, and when the drought comes, it shrivels up and dies. Why did this happen? Secret sin. Oh, but he doesn't stop there. Notice Psalms chapter 38, verses 1 through 6. David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. So I want to do something interesting. I want to diagnose David. Let's diagnose David. Let's look at his symptoms for a moment, shall we? Here's what David says about keeping his sin secret. Number one, he talks about a fear of God. God, don't chasten me in your hot displeasure. He feared that, that God would punish him because of what he did. He was afraid. Secondly, he said, your arrows pierce me deeply. He describes his sin as afflicting him. What is he talking about? He's talking about guilt. Guilt. That inward piercing of guilt. He says, there's no soundness in my flesh. What's he mean by that? You ever just not felt right? You couldn't really describe what that meant, but you just say, I don't feel good. And someone says, what's wrong? I don't know, I just don't feel right. And I told my wife that before. She said, you don't look good. I said, I don't feel right. She's like, what's wrong? I don't know. I just don't feel right. You ever feel that way? You just don't feel right? You ever been in a time in life when nothing feels right? That's what he's saying. There is nothing sound about the way I feel. No health in my bones. I feel sick. I'm not right. He said, I, these sins are above my head. And I'm carrying them around, and they're too heavy. You ever carry something above your head? It's, it's, it's not long before those arms get tired, right? He says, like I'm walking around every day carrying this heavy burden. And he said, I don't have the strength to carry it any longer. He says, my wounds are foul and festering. Foul and festering, what's that mean? I know this is somewhat graphic, but this is what he's saying. My wounds are infected to the point of stinking. You're going to have a wound that's neglected for a long time before it gets to that point. It's not getting any better. He's hurting. He said, I go walking around all day bowed down. What if you walked into a doctor's office and they said, tell us why you're here and this is what you wrote down. What do you suppose they would tell you? If you're a medical doctor, they'll tell you to go see a therapist or a psychiatrist, or a psychologist, because they'll say, I think you're mentally ill. You'll go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and if, if that person is, is a secular psychologist or psychiatrist, many times what they'll do is they'll look at this and say, well, you've got this disorder or that disorder or this disorder. We're going to prescribe you some medicine that will help regulate these things, and off you go. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that some people don't have physiological things going on inside of their mind that we would term as mental illness. There are physiological problems that some people have that cause symptoms in their life that are physical in nature. But listen to David as he describes all these symptoms. He says, I'll tell you what the problem is. 
secret sin. I'm not saying mental illness doesn't exist. What I'm telling you is this. A lot of mental illness is misdiagnosed. It's misdiagnosed. And if you will trace a person's behavior, you will see a long history, oftentimes, of secret, unrepented, unresolved guilt. And you know what it does? It makes us ill. It makes us sick. It makes us depressed. It makes us fear. And that's exactly what it did to David. And I want you to know that God gives us a cure. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I believe this is one of the most, if not the most, neglected and ignored passages in the New Testament. I believe that. You say, why would you believe that? When's the last time that you called a brother or sister in Christ and confessed your sin to them and said, pray for me? Maybe you're thinking right now, I ain't doing that. <laughs> I am not doing that. I know, right? Well, I'm not doing that. I'm not telling someone else what I did. Oh, I know. We've, we've been conditioned to believe that's the wrong thing to do. You know what we're told? Tell everybody about all the good things you've done and hide all the bad things you've done. You know what Jesus said? Don't tell anybody about the good things you did and confess the bad things you did. Why? Why would you do that? That's humiliating. You know what we want? We want to retain the delusion of our dignity. And I say delusion of our dignity because what we convince ourselves is if I tell someone what I did, if I tell someone that I've sinned, they'll look at me differently. That will be humiliating. Would it surprise you tonight if I said that I, Ian Jones, sin in my life? Would that surprise you? I hope it doesn't. I try to live for Jesus, but I fail. And I bet you do too. Sometimes I say the wrong thing. Sometimes I say the right thing with the wrong attitude. My mouth gets me in trouble more than anything, if you can believe that. You ever do that? You ever sin? Do you ever confess those sins? You know what we do? We'll do everything within our power to spare ourselves of the humiliation of someone else knowing that we've sinned. And keep our sickness. That's what we do. Or we could experience that moment of disgrace and humiliation and be healed from our sickness. So we choose a life of depression and sickness because of secret sin. But we delay the inevitable, which is humiliation, which eventually we're going to get anyway when we stand before Jesus. That's insanity. I know what it is. I know what it is in me. It's pride. It's pride. You say, well, what if, what if I tell somebody my sin and they tell somebody else? Well, if you really fear that, don't tell that person. Tell someone else. I'm serious. We'll find all kinds of excuses not to confess our sin. But I know this. God said, confess your sin. Why? That you may be healed. Tom said yesterday, you put the medicine where the pain is. That's the medicine for the pain. That's the medicine. And we ignore it. We don't think it works. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I want to repeat what I said earlier. When we fail to confess our sins, thinking it won't work, what we're saying is, God, you are not faithful and you are not just. You are not faithful and you are not just. God says every time. You confess the sin, I'm faithful, I'm just. Now listen, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is not a sin that you have committed that God will not forgive you if you come to Him on His terms. And the blood of Jesus is enough to wash away any sin, even the worst sin. Even the worst sin. What did David do? He said, when I kept silent, I was dying inside. But when I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I didn't hide, I confessed my sin and you forgave it. Isn't that simple? There's nothing complicated about our lesson tonight, is there? 
Again, I don't know your life. I don't know what sin is in your life. I don't know if you've committed grievous sins in your life. Get, go ahead and get your songbooks out if you don't mind. What I do know is that many, many people are haunted by their past. They'll lose sleep at night. They'll isolate themselves socially. Stay away from people that they think might find out what they're up to. That's no way to live life. It's depressing. And maybe you've struggled to find within yourself the power to forgive yourself. And I want you to know you need to stop that. Because that's not going to work. It's not going to work. What you need to do rather than that is trust in the grace of God. Trust in God's grace. That's what you need to do is trust God's grace. And I want to ask you some questions as we review tonight. Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you? I'm not going to make any bones about it. If you're not washed, you should feel guilty because you're dirty. You're dirty. Just like everybody else who has been washed was at one time. You will never ever be freed from your sin until you submit yourself to God and you appeal to Him and say, cleanse me on the outside, and the inside rather, and wash my record, wash away my sin. You'll never experience that peace. Number two, are you different? Are you living for Jesus? If you're not, you should feel guilty because you're not different. You're not transformed. You're not walking with Christ. And if you're not walking with Christ, then he's not going to justify you from your sin. You can't live life that way. Maybe you've got secret sin in your life that you've never confessed. Look, I'm not telling you that every single sin you ever commit needs to be confessed to someone else. That's not my point at all. I'm saying that there are some sins that stick with us and stay with us and we'll never get past it until we do what God said and confess that sin. Have you done those things? I want to read one last passage before we sing the invitation song. It's the very end, toward the end of this chapter that we started in. Where David says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. To sort of paraphrase what David is saying here, he's saying if you would put a price on it, I'd pay it. But I know that's not what you want. You know what God wants from us? The one thing that we often resist the most, and that's just to admit, I'm broken. I'm broken. God fix me. You know what? When we do that, He will. It'll cost you something to get past your past. It's going to cost you your pride. Because you've got to come to God. And if you don't come to God, you're going to be sick all your life. Do you want to be healed tonight? Do you want to be washed do you need to confess your sin? Come now, have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.